return to once again explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And tonight we are going to be discussing a particular passage of Scripture. We're going to begin another series, not in order, um, not sequential series, but we are going to begin a series of discussing various Scriptures that have been contextualize, or I should say, taken out of their context, and we are going to be examining them within their context and contextualizing them to draw from them the meaning as close to what the writer may have intended and see how that changes, how that may apply in, in a sense that in, in our modern day and time. And I just butchered that. So we're just going to start that all over. <laughs> all right. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah I'm good with it. All right. All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are ever exploring faith and pursuing grace. And tonight we're going to be talking about Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. We're going to begin a new non-sequential series on contextualizing various scriptures within the Bible that have often been taken out of context to make a certain application or a point that goes afield of what the author may have originally intended. And whenever we think about Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, this is a famous passage, a famous statement made by Jesus in which Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And this is a passage that is not only spoken of here, it's also seen in other various verses within the gospel accounts in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew 10 and 38 and Matthew 16 and Luke chapter 14. This is an idiom that Jesus uses over again in his ministry. This is a popular verse, but it's often used out of context and it's used to make an application that may not fit the actual context that the author intended to convey. Yeah. Yeah, this is a passage that has, and we're going to discuss this a little bit later, but this is a passage I've seen weaponized. I like to use that word for this passage because someone's going through a tough time or if someone believes in a conviction that maybe someone else doesn't believe in, but they want that other person to believe in it, and they go, well, hey, you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus and this is the cross that you're called to carry. This is the cross you're called to bear. If you really want to follow Jesus, then this is what you have to do. So this verse begins to be overextended to pretty much mean whatever the person at the time wants it to mean. And that's so dangerous <laughs> yeah. when, we, when we begin to weaponize the Bible that way. And so I want to first jump in here to talk about what, is going on here in this passage. And the way that we can first understand what Jesus meant is by understanding what the cross represented at this time. Now, you already brought up how this phrase, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up their cross and, and follow me. And it is, it's used four other times. It's used in, Ma in Mark 8, 34, Matthew 10, 38, Matthew 16, 24, and Luke 14, 27. And the cross represented death. That's what the cross meant. Romans forced convicted criminals to actually carry their own crosses to the place of crucifixion. So when someone was going to have to be crucified, they were obligated to carry their own cross. And we even see this with, uh, with Jesus as well. And to, to the audience, bearing a cross meant carrying one's own execution device 
while facing ridicule along the way to death. That's literally what it meant. So this was an idiom at that time when you said you have to carry, take up your cross and carry your own cross. That was a idiom. That was a metaphor that represented death, that you're, you're going to have to die. <laughs> yeah, if you and, follow me, you're likely going to face death in the process of doing so. Yes, and um, we had Josh Scott on our show a while back, and, and while I appreciated much of what he said, this is, this is one point. Um, I, I, there were several I would uh, say I depart understandings with him, and this is one where I do believe Jesus knew that he was going to be dying. I don't know at what point he knew that, but he certainly knew it before it happened. And the reason is because within these contexts, Jesus was actually telling them that in their day and in their time, following him more than likely meant that they would be put to death, just like he was going to have to be put to death. And if you if you don't mind, Lee, I want to read just a couple of these passages so that you can understand the context. Yeah, yeah, go um, for it. Not, not you, but I mean how just all of us can understand the context of what's going on here. Because all verses have context, right? All statements have context. And before Jesus said this, this is what he said. This is Matthew uh, twenty, Matthew 16, 21 through 23. You can also look at it in Luke uh, 9, 21 and 22, and then also Mark 8, 31 through 34. It's in all, it's in all three gospel accounts. So th- this is what you have within this statement. Said Matthew 16, 21, verse 23 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then, right after that, is when Jesus said, Take up your cross and follow me. And in all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we see that this is where this statement, this famous statement, typically finds itself in within this context. And so this is what taking up your cross meant. Taking up your cross historically meant you were going to have to die. You were going to have to, to, to bear your cross and that you're, you're taking your own execution device and you're going to go up to the mountain or wherever you're going to be crucified and you're actually having to carry your own cross. So Jesus was using this as a metaphor to say, just as I am about to physically die here in the future, so you too are also going to die uh, as well if you follow me. Now, I believe that Jesus was speaking generally. I don't think he meant that every single Christian who ever followed Jesus, uh, whoever followed him in the first century was going to die. But since persecution was so prevalent during that point, and in that time, that's what Jesus was talking about. So that that's what it means. I mean, whatever application we make from it, we have to understand this is the context that Jesus was, in essence, saying, are you willing to die for me? That's all it means. And so there's, there's a lot of uh, abuses of this passage. And Lee, I'll kind of cover the first abuse, and we'll talk about this, then I'll let you uh, kind of segue into the to, to another abuse. But the first abuse of this passage can actually be seen historically among some of the earliest Christians. And that is, there were some early Christians, and this is, by the way, this is almost comical because we're 2000, almost 2,000 years removed from all this, but it's it's 
one of those things when you read it, you kind of scratch your head and say like, wow, they really read the Bible a, a lot differently than we read it today. Um, but a lot of these early church fathers, which early church fathers, we've talked about them on our show. Some the, these the early church fathers, these were not like a specific group of men. This was just a description of, of, of intelligent, literate Christians who wrote shortly after uh, after the death of the apostles in the following centuries. And there was a popular belief among some Christians in the early church, some of these early church fathers, who believed that in order to go to heaven, in order to follow Jesus, you actually had to die for the cause of Christ, or at least you had to attempt to die for the cause of Christ. And so a lot of these Christians, they were actually wanting to be martyred. <laughs> they were trying to be martyrs because they believe that's what they were supposed to do. So they were trying, in essence, to die for the cause of Christ. It wasn't just like, if it happens, I'm willing for it to happen. It's like, no, 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 we've got to figure out how to die for Jesus Christ. Now, what's humorously about this is uh, there was a guy by the name of Ignatius who lived very early um, most put his life around 35 to 107. So, I mean, we're talking about right after he was Jesus there. Died. Yeah. 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 I mean, he, he was, he, he lived uh, during the time of the apostles and he believed that he needed to die for the cause of Christ. And Ignatius was even upset when Christians prayed for his rescue while he was in prison, because he actually saw their prayers as them interfering with his obedience to Jesus. <laughs> so, well, dude, that's so in, wild. <laughs> yeah, so here he is in prison for his faith, and he's like so happy about it. He's like, yes, yes, you know, I'm going to die for Jesus. I want to be a martyr for Jesus. And he's receiving these letters and saying, hey, you know, all these Christians are praying for you. We're praying for your deliverance, for your rescue. And he, he writes back, and he's mad. He's upset about it. He's like, quit doing that. Pray that I'm able to die for the cause of Christ. Don't pray that I'm able to, to be released. And so this is one abuse of this passage. This is one problem of trying to read the Bible as a book written directly for me because we can end up taking it way out of context. We talked about this, I think, uh, in times past of, of uh, Anthony the Great, who was one of the originators of the Desert Fathers. He believed in Matthew. He heard a sermon based on Matthew nineteen twenty one, where Jesus said, "If you if you're rich, you have to sell everything you have and give to the poor." And he literally did that. He sold everything he had, and he gave it to the poor. And then he moved out into the desert because he tried to apply the Bible directly to him, as if it was being instructed right to him. And that's that's a problem with reading the Bible that way. Is this two step approach? That's not the way the Bible was written, but. Even as well, even and, as early here in the in the late first and early second century, you, you know you have uh, you have early Christians who believe that in order to follow Jesus, they actually had to die for him. Well, and it's a it's a further example of how a strict wooden literalist approach to Scripture can lead you down some really really strange paths and take you to some really strange places. And if if we're honest about it, and I, and I think we are in general on this podcast, and I think most people tend to be, but if we're honest about it, those people engage in a, in a completely different kind of wooden literalism than we do today. And whenever we look at things oh, yeah. through that woodenly literal lens, well, it lends itself to some really, really wild and wacky conclusions and practices and applications. But even if you look at this through a more 
um, what's the word? I, I want to say esoteric, but I'm not sure that's the right word. But even through a more more figurative lens, it, it can lead to some weird conclusions. And sometimes even these conclusions can be harmful because another way that this passage is abused is in taking this in taking the metaphor Jesus uses and then broadening that metaphorical application. Because in terms of what Jesus is saying here, he's specifically referring to a willingness to die for him. That's what he's talking about. But whenever we talk about taking up our cross and following him, that's an idiom that meant literal death. We oftentimes take that and broaden that metaphor to cover other things that it doesn't really necessarily cover. You know, we say that, well, that's my cross to bear. I mean, that's that's a common idiom that's used in our modern parlance, even amongst people that are not overtly religious. You'll hear people that maybe are atheists or who belong to other systems of faith, and it just shows how prevalent a Christian worldview is in the West, especially. People will use this term, well, this is just my cross to bear. I'll just have to deal with it. Take up your cross and follow me. And they use it in terms like illness, you know, or maybe a genetic. I heard someone use it once as in speaking of their allergy to gluten and how they used to love bread and how they're never going to really be able to eat bread again (laughs) because it just makes them so sick and tears up their stomach and causes all these problems. They get bloated and, you know, they have terrible gas and their spouse doesn't want to be around them. Well, you know, I just, I love bread so much and oh my goodness, I just really want to eat bread and enjoy bread, but I can't because of my gluten allergy. That's just my cross to bear. And you know, and in that sense, it's kind of comical to see that term misappropriated. But there are even other ways in which it's misappropriated and misapplied in, in ways that are harmful. I have a friend who, you know, was was in a marriage, and it it was not a good marriage at all. And they held the belief that they could not divorce their wife because, you know, of what we talked about in our series of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, where we talked about how you used to think about and how I used to think about it. Well, I need to stay in this horrible relationship I have with this woman who is, you know, abusive and controlling and manipulative, and she's just a horrible person. I I cannot divorce her, and I will not divorce her. That's just that's my cross to bear, or mm-hmm. or they have a parental you know figure in their life. They have a mother or a father who's treated them poorly. They're in a toxic relationship. And, you know, I'm supposed to love everyone. I'm supposed to love my enemies. I'm supposed to forgive those people who spitefully use me and persecute me. And that means staying in a toxic, abusive, damaging, harmful relationship with this person. Well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to take up my cross and follow him. That's another way that this passage has been used. But Jesus is not saying that following him is a burden. And that's one thing that I don't think we're emphatic enough about. Whenever Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that doesn't mean following Jesus in and of itself is a burden. As we talked about in a previous episode, and, and, and one of the things that the Bible speaks of is that Jesus came to give us a more abundant life. If you following Jesus means that your life is a shell of what it could be, if following Jesus in your perspective means that that your life is in shambles and you're involved in these toxic relationships and you're being abused all the time, you're not following Jesus. You're following a facsimile of something that might pretend to pass for Jesus, 
but you're not following Jesus. Following yeah. Jesus and living a Christian life is not a life that's burdensome. It's not a life that is rife with disappointment and failure and wondering if you'll ever be good enough and having to grin and bear the scars that this life can leave both physically and emotionally. That's not following Jesus. That is abuse. That is that is a life of, of squalor that no one wants to be a part of. And honestly, that doesn't preach. If, if we're supposed to go out and present Jesus to the world and we're supposed to, to evangelize and share Jesus and share this opportunity of an abundant life with these people that are outside of our own circles, if we're demonstrating misery because we're in a miserable relationship, if we're demonstrating misery because we are forced to stay in a toxic environment and toxic relationships, no one wants to be a part of that. And that's not good news. That's oppression. That's pretty much, that, yeah, that's what I had to say about, about that. I'm done. <laughs> is that there's... No, well, I was just going to say what is so sad about all this is, you know, I believed, and I'm sure you did too for many years, is that the New Testament, when Jesus came, he brought a more difficult law system to follow. Yeah. And that it wasn't wasn't enough just to to follow Jesus. Now you had to follow, uh, or it wasn't. Excuse me, it wasn't enough just to keep the commands. Now you had to keep these more difficult commands. And it's this idea that Jesus brought even a a more difficult law system, which is ridiculous. Because in Acts fifteen, verse ten, when discussing the Old Testament law system. He says, now, then why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're saying that, look, even the apostles couldn't keep the old covenant. And so we're then to believe that Jesus is bringing a more difficult covenant. He's bringing a more difficult burden to bear. He's making the impossible even harder that makes absolutely no sense. And that's why one of my favorite passages has now become Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is contrasting the yoke, the burden that he's going to place on his followers with the with the law. And he's saying that, look, the law was impossible. It was hard. It was heavy. It was difficult. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble. You'll find rest. My yoke's easy. My burden is light. I heard someone the, not too long ago, they said, well, the Bible never says following Jesus is easy. Um, my yeah, yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now, now I will say this, following Jesus may mean a difficult life because of how others may treat us, but it's not Jesus who is making it difficult. And that's why it's so important to understand that, that yes, following Jesus, especially within the context of the first century, oftentimes meant you were going to be betrayed by your family. It meant that you were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. It meant that you could lose your life because you're dealing with a time and place where persecution was very, very, very prevalent. But the point is, is that it's not Jesus who is taking these burdens and making them heavy and then placing them on our shoulders. It's other people doing that for us when we decide to follow Christ. And so 
that's why when you go to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. It's not like the Old Testament law system that no one could bear. So when someone says, oh, well, you think the Old Testament was hard, Jesus kicked it up a notch and made it a lot harder. Next time, point them to, to whoever says that, point them to Acts chapter 15, verse 10, and Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And even in Matthew 20, uh, 23, Jesus talks about how the scribes and Pharisees, many of them, they were creating burdens that were just too heavy to bear, that no one could actually bear. And even in 1 John 5, we see that the commandments of God, they are not burdensome. And when you put all of this together, it paints a completely different picture. It absolutely does. And whenever we consider what it means to follow after Jesus, whenever we consider what it means to pursue him above all else, what that means is, is that we put love to work in our lives and we manifest our love for God by manifesting love for neighbor. That's been a common theme with the last I guess seven or eight episodes we've done, that has been a topic that we just keep circling around to because that is the primary impetus within the Christian life. That is the primary thrust of what it is we are called to do. And in taking up our cross and following him in that time and in that day, it didn't mean that you might face death. You would likely face betrayal at the hands of your enemies. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what, is going to happen to us in our modern day and time. The Judeo-Christian ethic is an underpinning and undergirding principle for our constitution. Even though, you know, America is not a Christian nation per se, you see certain biblical principles that are reflected within the constitution itself that the framers put in there for a reason, because no matter what faith system one comes from, whether they're an atheist, whether they're a Muslim, whatever the case may be, we all recognize that love is a high priority. Love is a big thing. Love, in, in terms of constitutionality, you might say, love allows people to live their lives as they see fit without encroaching upon them. At least that's how my libertarian butt views love. <laughs> but, but as far as love goes, that is the ultimate ethic. And if one loves Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength in that day, it would mean literally taking up that cross and following him even to the point of death. And I think that that plays a large role in contextualizing and applying what that means for us today. In, yeah. in, in, in its significance, taking up the cross for the cause of Christ, depending on where you are in the world, it might mean that you're going to die on behalf of him. But after he dies, it casts the cross in a completely new light. The cross now becomes not just an image of death, but it becomes an, an image of love because in it, we see Jesus suffering and dying out of his superabundance of love for you, out of his abundance of love for me. It's a representation of that ultimate love that Christ manifests, that God manifests to the world in offering the best of heaven for us. So in that sense of application and how we make sense of that passage today, it's not talking about literally dying for Christ and thinking, okay, what can I do to get thrown in prison and executed for Christ so I can fulfill that literal commandment? It also doesn't have anything to do with staying in a toxic environment, in a toxic relationship, being a doormat for people to just walk all over you. That's not your cross to bear. That's not what that means. In, in application, 
what we see then is a representation of love. So then how do we manifest that love in our own lives? How do we put that love to work in our own lives and demonstrate that love for our fellow man and thereby to God? Yeah. And and that's really where what it boils down to is that this passage cannot be directly applicable for us today unless we live in a country that is heavily persecuted where people actually are dying. And there are countries where that is happening. People are having to die for the cause of Christ. But Jesus was specifically talking to the to to a, a, not just everybody, but a specific audience. And he was speaking to mostly these Jews who were faced with a decision, follow Jesus and lose your life or reject Jesus and keep your life. And that's why Jesus makes these statements, whoever loses his life will find it. Jesus literally meant that when he said it to the original audience. But we can't. We have to be careful not to project our situation onto two, something Jesus said 2,000 years ago because it just doesn't make any sense in our day and time. Lee, as you pointed out, America's not a Christian nation, quote-unquote, the way that a lot of people uh, define that. But that said... Um, Christianity is free, very free to roam in America. And it's, you know, I, I am not terrified of being a Christian in America. <laughs> in yeah. fact, if you speak to non-Christians, they're more afraid of Christians in America <laughs> right now. And quite frankly, I'm afraid a lot of self-proclaimed Christians right now too. But the, the idea is that when you place a verse that was spoken in a different point in time, in a different context, 2,000 years ago to a different group of people, and you try to insert it in America today, it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. And so people re people realizing that say, well, we've got to make it mean something else. And then that's when they do what you just talked about, where they'll say, oh, well, this means you know, sacrificing this, or this means sacrificing that. And they begin to make all these second and third dairy applica applications. Uh, I think we have to be careful with that because ultimately... Yes, the cross did take on a different meaning. After Jesus died, when he was resurrected, the cross became a symbol of love, became a symbol of hope, and we're eventually going to get into different atonement theories because I have definitely changed my view on what the atonement meant, uh, what it means, and how we're to understand it in our day and time, and what really Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. Uh, regardless of what atonement theory you may take, and there's uh, many of them out there, they all boil down to Jesus did what he did out of love. But 1 John 3.16 actually says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So now even the Apostle John is saying that it's not just a matter of laying our life down for Jesus, but this is what love looks like. We may have to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And John 15, 12 through 13, Jesus said, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for their friends. But then Romans 5, 6 through 8 said Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends. Jesus didn't lay down his life just for those who loved him. But while we were still yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And then 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22, Peter says to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example 
that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their inserts, insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So what we see is that the cross, taking up one's cross then, is, I believe, if we want to make some sort of secondary application, what did Jesus mean? Well, he meant that to the original audience that they would more than likely have to die. They would have to give up their lives. To us, it's a representation of what love looks like. And especially to those who, when Jesus died, for those in the first century and following, they realized this is what love looks like. Love is not destroying one's enemies. It's not hating one's enemies. It's laying down their life for their enemies. It's willing to hear insults, but not retaliate. It's willing to suffer at the hands of others while making no threats against them. It's a matter of entrusting ourselves to God. And that is really what it comes down to. If we want to know what love looks like, it's Jesus dying on the cross. It's him showing us it's this is love. This is the demonstration of love. And so ultimately, when, it, when we boil it down, taking up one's cross to follow Jesus meant dying for the cause of Christ. Today, I believe it means loving like Jesus loved. And I think it meant that meant that, you know, in the first centuries too, don't get me wrong, because first John 3 16 uh, says exactly that. But I believe that in today's culture, most of us are not going to die for the cause of Christ. We're just not. We're not. We're not ever even going to be put in that position. Um, and that's why it's it's a little bit humorous when I hear Christians talk about all the persecution that we're getting in America and these things. I mean, it's it's almost a mockery when you actually read of people in other countries who truly are facing persecution. And um, and but it, you know, it ultimately comes down to this: laying down our lives for one another in self-sacrifice, loving our neighbor as ourselves, making sure that we're ex exemplifying a, a kind of radical love. That when people make fun of us, we don't make fun of them back. When people, um, when people make us suffer, when we suffer at the hands of our enemies, we don't we don't threaten. We don't say, well, wait, wait, you know, wait till uh, I have my time with you. Wait until, you know, I get my chance and I'm going to I'm going to do all sorts of horrible things or I hope horrible things come upon you. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So if we want to take up our cross and follow Jesus today, if we're going to make a secondary application today in our culture, I believe it means a self-sacrificing love where we are willing to love our neighbors as ourselves. Agree 100%, brother. Agree 100%. And I think that th it, it, taking that view of Scripture, not only is it going to give us a better appreciation of love and what the cross means and what it meant in that day and time and what it means for us today, it also can undo a lot of the damage that is often done in viewing these other things in life as a cross to bear. And of course, you can use that metaphor for those things because it's a metaphorically sound statement to make because it's been used so many times. But you can't say that that's what the scriptures actually <laughs> yeah. mean in that sense, you know, and, and there's a lot of harm and damage that has been done in people's lives in the name of taking up your cross and following Jesus and reading that through a Christocentric lens of love. In my mind, I agree hundred percent with it. It gives a whole lot more um, punch 
for lack of a better term, to the gospel and to what it actually means. And, it, and in my mind, it respects the the context. So yeah, I think that's sure. good. Yeah, we, we've no, got go to ahead. quit letting it be a metaphorical catch-all to whenever we want somebody to do something. We weaponize that verse and say, oh, you're not taking up your cross. You got to follow Jesus. You know, you got to take up your cross. And, you know, it's like that's that's not even what this verse means. You know, we, we've, we've got to quit weaponizing verses like that. Yeah, it's a whole lot easier to operate in that type of mindset, and it, it really is more difficult to let the Bible speak for what it actually says. But I think it's a good conversation. I think this is a good way to kick off this short little series of contextualizing scriptures, and we have more to come. These episodes will more than likely be shorter in duration. This may very well be the shortest episode we've ever recorded at 32, 33 minutes. <laughs> Um, with that being said, we appreciate all of you. And if you have suggestions on verses that you would like to hear discussed and contextualize, send us those. We, we have an idea of what we're going to cover in the future, but we'd love to hear from you guys and cover what verses you guys have often struggled with or wrestled with or questioned. So thank you all so much. We appreciate all of you. Drop us a line. Um, give us that five-star review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. We love all of you and we bid you all a good day.